All right, so let's go ahead and open up our Bibles. And like I said, I want to go back and do a little bit of recap before we jump back into Romans 11. Uh, so I want to go back and look at Romans 8. Romans 8 is a really rich chapter. And um, down at the, the bottom of Romans 8 is where I want to look at in very popular verses, Romans 8, 38 and 39, where Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Really great, encouraging, inspiring verses, right? Um, And then he turns to Israel. And in verses 1 and 2, of chapter 9. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And he was sorrowful and grieving because he realized that Israel was lost. Israel as a whole uh, had rejected their Messiah. They had turned aside and they were chasing after a salvation that was by works and not by faith. And then in verse 6 of key verse that we've gone back and back to uh, of chapter 9. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And so he's hammering that home and letting them know that yes, God is faithful, God is sovereign, that all things do indeed work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Um, And Israel has rejected their king, but God's word has not failed. And then looking at Romans 10, going forward a little bit, uh, in verses 14 and 15, we see another real high point of uh, encouragement, of exaltation, talking about the gospel and how great the gospel is, saying, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In verse 17, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So again, uh, real gospel-centered, real encouraging. And then he follows it up in verse 18. um, And he says, But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Speaking again of Israel. And then he... He's kind of being sarcastic, right? Oh, of course they've never heard. He's um, anticipating their their objections, thinking that they're going to say, well, God never told me about this salvation, right? But then he quotes scripture. He goes back to the Psalms and he says, indeed, they have heard. Their voice has gone out into all of the earth and their words into all of the world. So he's going back to the holy inspired word of God and saying, well, God says it, you've heard, right? And uh, we talked about that back when we were going through there and how he applied uh, Psalm 19. And then he says in 19, of chapter 10. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And then he quotes the law. And he says, well, Moses said that I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, speaking of the Gentiles, by a nation without understanding, will I anger you? And we'll see a little bit of that same concept in our passage today, talking about jealousy and how God is going to provoke Israel with uh, the the Gentiles, and he is going to draw them to himself by the jealousy that, um, that is aroused in them through the salvation of the Gentiles. And then in 20, he goes to the prophets. So 
uh, he quotes a, a psalm, he quotes the law, he quotes a prophet, and he says, Isaiah is very bold to say that I was found by those who did not seek me, and I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and an obstinate people. So Paul's punching pretty hard, right? He's saying, you guys are disobedient, you're obstinate, you guys are lost, and I'm sorrowful for you. And then he comes back in verse 1, and he kind of gives them some reassurance. So chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. That's a term that we should be pretty familiar with by now, right? For I too am an Israelite. So he gives three different assurances why God has not rejected his people. Even though he's punching pretty hard, even though he's giving it to them and telling them, you guys messed up pretty good. He says, uh, God hasn't rejected you, one, because uh, Paul himself is a Jew. We see that in verse one. Uh, in verse two, he uh, cites God's character and his foreknowledge of Israel. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So the reason that, or one of the, the assurances that God didn't reject Israel was based on God's very character and nature himself. And then third, he cites Elijah as an example of the remnant of Israel, saying that God has always saved for himself a people, a remnant who have been faithful to him. And he says, you guys remember Elijah, right? You've read about Elijah and how he pled with God from Israel, and he was kind of whiny and mopey, saying, God, I'm the only one in all of Israel. And God kind of rebuked him and said, no, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. And he says that he was a, a representation of the remnant of those who have always been faithful to God throughout uh, times when Israel as a whole would turn away from God. And then in verse 7, we saw um, Israel mentioned in three different ways. Jeremy taught this last week. How did we see Israel mentioned in verse 7? Do you guys remember? When he first mentions Israel in that verse, what then, what Israel is seeking? Who's he talking about there? Yeah, the, the nation, right? So that's national Israel or ethnic Israel. And then what other groups do we see in that verse, in verse 7? All right, so that's the first group. Second group is the chosen. So those who are um, saved, right? Believing Israel. And then what about the third group? The rest. All right. So the rest or the hardened, right? And those are disbelieving Israel. And so we made a distinction between the way that Paul talks about Israel as he's going throughout uh, the book of Romans. And so he recognizes that there is a nation of Israel and God has spoken to that nation in a number of ways. Um, and then he has chosen a, a portion or a section of those. But as a whole, um, not as a whole, but uh, in the, the majority, they are hardened to God, to um, his salvation. All right, and then... Um, Paul does the same thing that he did back in chapter 10, and he begins to uh, rebuke them again, citing, once again, the Old Testament. So 
uh, verse 8, he says, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Uh, and there he was borrowing from the law and the prophet. And then 9 and 10, he quotes a psalm, quotes David, and he says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened and not see and bend their backs forever. So once again, he's saying these guys are blind. Uh, they've been given this spirit of stupor and seems like they've been hardened, right? He does call them hardened, saying that they are not following the way that they've seen. And then once again, uh, in verse 11, he kind of brings them around again. He is uh, trying to balance a firm and honest uh, correction and talking about how Israel has indeed gone astray and they've rejected their Messiah while also um, trying to present God's restrained loving reality that he's not yet or he has not at all um, gotten rid of Israel ultimately and finally. And so in verse 11, he says, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall. So that same kind of concept. Yes, you messed up, but um, not that bad, right? I'm sure that we've done that with our, our kids or our dogs, not our spouses, certainly, that we're like, yeah, you, you screwed up and I'm upset about it, but um, I'm not that upset that I'm going to off you, right? So um, he's trying to balance that. You're in trouble, but God is gracious. And so again in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they may it never be. So in this verse, in verse 11, uh, who is Paul addressing? What Israel does he have in mind? Is it the whole nation? Is it the chosen? Is it the hardened? What do you think and, and how do you know? So he mentions their, their transgression, right? And their falling. So he's talking about this hardened section of Israel, the Israel who as a whole has rejected their Savior. They've rejected the Messiah. So he says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall. Um, so we looked at this a little bit um, back in verse 9. Uh, and then 9.33 also, we looked at this idea of stumbling where... Uh, it says, again, quoting the Old Testament, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him is not disappointed. So that's obviously referring to Christ. Christ is the one whom they have stumbled over. So they stumbled, but not as to fall. Again, not in a way that um, is ending in their ultimate destruction, not irrevocably or mortally. Um, the Launida Greek lexicon says that it means to experience destruction or to be destroyed. So when it talks about them stumbling so not as to fall, it's saying they're not absolutely destroyed. They're not going to be finished and terminated and done with. Um, again, Paul is giving them hope. Yes, you messed up, but not so as to fall. Not so as to be absolutely destroyed. So did they stumble so as to fall? 
may it never be. Now, this, uh, somebody asked last week, and it was a good question, they said, um, is this presenting some kind of ambiguity, like maybe God will allow this and maybe he won't, because um, that's kind of how we use may sometimes, like it's a possibility. There is no ambiguity at all in the way that Paul uses this word. Um, he's saying absolutely not. Uh, ESV says by no means, NLT of course not, NIV not at all. God forbid in the King James, certainly not in the King, New King James. So he's saying there is no way that Israel will fall at all. It's the strongest way to say no in the Greek. Britt, do you remember the Greek? Meganoita. Our Greek professor would always say that whenever he went there. And he would yell it out because that's kind of what Paul is doing. Meganoito, right? Um, may it never be, God forbid. They are not going to fall. Um, so there's no ambiguity in the way that that's presented. Um, but God has made his promise to Israel and he will stand firm on that promise. And so he goes on, he says, but by their transgression, they're not going to fall, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So what exactly did Israel transgress? <laughs> Explain. Amen. So, yeah, they transgressed, as Jerry said, everything, right? Um, I have a, a cap that I just dropped. Um, <laughs> Also, I have a timeline. I think I put it in the wrong spot on your notes, and I'm going to erase this. Um, but on that timeline, um, I wanted to go back and look at how they transgressed everything. So it was about uh, 2000 BC when God made his promise to Abraham. And what was his promise to Abraham? What's that? Yeah, that he will give him a nation, build him into a nation, right? So the three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant are the, the land and seed and blessing, right? That he will give him a specific portion of land, that he will bless the world through his seed, um, that he will give him a, um, a great inheritance, that he will um, build many nations out of him, and that he will bless the world, the nations through him. All right, and then... 14, about 1400 BC, uh, 1500, uh, we have Moses come on the scene. And did Israel transgress God at all in the time of Moses? How did Israel transgress God when Moses was on the scene? <laughs> yeah, they had all kinds of mistakes, right? Um, and they were building false gods and attributing to stuff um, the, the very miraculous works of God to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. They had spent 40 years wandering in the desert as a result of that. Um, all kinds of transgression with Moses, right? Tons and tons of wine, right? 
All right, and then after Moses, Joshua came along, right? And Joshua seemed to be leading things in the right direction. But I mean, through all this, Israel is just falling and whining and rebelling and chasing after false gods. Um, what happened after Joshua? How did God lead his nation after Joshua? Yeah, through the judges, right? And the judges have these, um, we talked about it a while ago when we were going through judges, these cycles where they would just rebel against God and um, God would send them a judge to bring them back to repentance and they would do okay for a minute and then they would rebel against God and they would chase after other idols and they would get involved with other nations and they were just constantly rebelling for a little bit less than 300 years. They were going through these different cycles with judges. And then after the judges, how did God lead his nation? With kings, right? And that's when... Uh, David comes on the scene, right? Saul and then David, about 1000 BC. These are just rounded numbers that I put in my head so I can remember. Um, I don't think we need to remember exact numbers, but about 1000 BC, David comes on the scene. And even though David was a man after God's own heart, David fell, right? And um, David was the, the best king that Israel had. After that, it's just downhill. Even the kings are, are failing and falling and leading Israel astray. They are transgressing, right? Um, about 700 is when um, Isaiah was around, and Isaiah had a bunch of other prophets that he was a contemporary to, and these prophets did the same thing in both the northern and southern kingdom. They were prophesying that you must repent, right? That God is going to bring judgment. Where it was telling me not long ago that um, in their minor prophets win, women's Bible study, it seems like it's the same thing over and over and over again. And it absolutely is because Israel continues to go after other gods. They continue to fail. And God says, you're going to be judged and uh, you need to repent. And it's pretty much the same story, different chapter, right? Um, Israel falls and fails over and over and over again. And then this guy... John the Baptist comes on the scene, right? And that was after 400 years of silence. He's a weird dude who likes to eat grasshoppers, right? Not grasshoppers, locusts, um, and dress weird. And he is proclaiming that, hey, there's somebody coming, that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is here, and you need to look to him and chase after him, that God has become a man. And that was world-changing, right? That's at, at year zero because he absolutely splits the calendar because everybody has been looking forward to this. This has been the promise from the very beginning. The Messiah has come and he is coming and now he is here and he is among you. And he walked among them, lived a, a life preparing for ministry for 30 years and then three years of ministry and he died at 33, right? Um, laying his life down then the Messiah was cut off, right? To use language from Daniel. And throughout all of this, Israel transgressed. They didn't believe they rejected their Messiah. Um, so if we were to try to pinpoint at what point did Israel transgress, uh, we can't really pinpoint and say, well, they transgressed here, right? They fell, they slipped, they um, sinned in this moment. But if we were to point at any one point, it would be here, right? At the, the incarnation when God was dwelling among them and they were beholding his glory, 
Um, that is the, the ultimate transgression against God, that they rejected the incarnate God and uh, transgressed against his gospel. So keeping, well, I guess, I don't care if you keep a finger in uh, Romans, but let's turn to Matthew. And we've looked and referenced this a couple of times, but I want to look at Matthew 21. And we'll see this illustrated in this parable that Jesus is telling in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his product. <coughs> the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent a group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they surely will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard, vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. There is a lot in there, but um, he un they understood that Jesus was speaking about them, saying that God had sent them uh, Abraham and the patriarchs. God had sent them David and the kings. God had sent them the law through Moses. He had sent them the prophets, and they had rejected. And then God sent them his son, and they rejected his son. They killed the son of God. And he said, this kingdom that was yours is going to be taken from you and given to another. So maybe we'll come back and address this issue of kingdom in a little bit. But this kingdom has um, moved from not just the Pharisees, but the Pharisees are representative of Israel and how Israel has rejected Christ and God in these various ways. And this kingdom is going to be given to another. In chapter 22, we see a, a similar parable. We won't go through and read it, but we see the parable of the, the marriage feast and how um, this man sends out uh, to invite all these guests to the wedding, and they refuse. they got other stuff going on. And instead, he goes out and he gets different people, um, just whoever he can grab to come to this wedding feast. Same kind of principle, same kind of picture that God had invited 
Israel to come, and they had rejected him. And so instead, he went out and he gathered others. Of course, they needed to be properly dressed for this wedding, right? They couldn't show up in whatever clothes they wanted, just as we can't show up before God in our own righteousness. Um, we need to show up prepared. Um, but it's a, another illustration of God being kind of fed up with Israel and the, the ways of Israel. One of my absolute favorite chapters in all the Bible in um, Matthew 23, where Jesus just rebukes the Pharisees over and over again. Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers, uh, you, you blind fools. Just over and over again, some 20 times probably, he is calling them out and rebuking them. At the end of that chapter, verses 37 through 39, let's read that together. It's Matthew 23, 37. Jesus, um, after Again, that harsh rebuke. He looks out and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So their house is going to be left desolate until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, again, God talking about Israel as a whole and their transgression against him, how they've rejected the gospel. And for a time, um, they will not see him until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again. Yes. Contingent. Yep, absolutely. That's the same kind of concept we see back here when we were looking at the different covenants that God made with different people. That with Abraham, the covenant that he made was unconditional, right? No conditions, no contingencies. Uh, the other covenants, there were conditions and contingencies, right? But just as Jeremy pointed out, it says until. It's unconditional. All right, let's get back into Romans 11. Um, and we'll come back and we'll finish this out, hopefully, if we have time. So back in Romans 11. So their transgression, by their transgression, Romans 11, 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. We saw that in uh, Matthew 1, or Matthew 21, rather. Um, through 23. So, their transgression has brought about salvation to the Gentiles. Verse 12, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And here we have some, some parallelism that Paul is starting to uh, repeat himself a little bit. And so, um, I think I put another place on your notes again. I think I put it out of place. But I want to kind of note this parallelism that we've started to see here. So in verse 11, Paul was talking about their transgression, right? Talking about Israel's transgression. And what does their transgression bring about? All right. Salvation. All right. And what is the point of this salvation for the Gentiles. All right, so it results in jealousy, right? We see this same pattern.
pattern repeated in verse 12, at least the first part of verse 12, right? He talks again, same uh, verbiage, their transgression. And what does that result in? In verse 12a. All right, riches for the world, which we can understand as being synonymous with salvation for the Gentiles, right? And then verse 12b, it doesn't say their transgression. What does it say? Going on, it talks about their... All right, failure, fall. So talking about their failure, and what does their failure lead to in the last part of verse 12? All right, so the first part was riches for the world, and the second part is riches for the Gentiles, right? And then um, what does that result in? What's it say? All right, my version says their fulfillment. That's really awkward to try to write like that. Um, so we can see parallelism there that the transgression of Israel, who we erase that, we, we identified as hardened Israel, right? Because they're transgressed. So by definition, uh, Israel and their transgression leads to the salvation of the Gentiles or the riches of the world or of the Gentiles. And it will result in jealousy by Israel or their fullness or the fulfillment of Israel, that that will bring about um, blessings for Israel. So we, here we see, I guess maybe in verse 13, um, Paul says specifically, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. So he's addressing the Gentiles and addressing their salvation all through here. Salvation for the Gentiles, riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles. Um, as Jeremy introduced last week, um, him speaking to the Gentiles and him addressing the Gentiles in this way, we shouldn't understand that the Gentiles are some kind of afterthought, that they're not plan B. But again, back here, when he made this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 4, and then also, um, I think it's chapter 17, um, he talks about how, oh, it's 22, 18. Uh, he talks about how the the point of that was to bless all the nations. All the nations through you will be blessed. So this was in view, in, in part, it wasn't revealed. It was still a mystery, but even in the, the Old Testament, we can see that God had in mind the blessing of the nations, the blessing of the Gentiles. Um, they're not a complete afterthought. Uh, God called Israel to be set apart for the nations, among the nations, for the purpose of the salvation of the nations. Um, just one reference I want to read to you here in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, starting in verse 6. God says, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness, speaking to Israel. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with another, nor my praise to graven images. So, 
again, God has been, um, even from Abraham and Moses, he had called Israel to be a, a nation that was set apart to him, that was holy and distinct, and that would be a light among the nations. And as we talked about through all of history, they didn't do a really great job at this, did they? They, they kind of failed at being distinct and set apart. <laughs> yeah, more than kind of, right? They, they were human, and they absolutely failed. And God knew that they were going to fail. However, God used even their failure to bring about um, good. Just as we talked about, again, in Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for his good even the bad things. At the end of Romans chapter 9, we talked about this doctrine of concurrence and how we have in mind uh, one end when we're doing certain things, but God can have something else completely different in mind, that we are both doing uh, different things to the same end, that Israel thinks, oh, we're we're rejecting God. And God says, well, I'm going to take that and I'm going to use that to draw the Gentiles to myself. And then he's going to turn around. He's going to use the drawing of the Gentiles to himself to draw Israel to himself by making them jealous and bringing about their fulfillment. Um, God is going to work even in the midst of Israel's disobedience. And Paul himself in his ministry to the Gentiles, um, it could be understood as him saying, especially here, he says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I speak to the Gentiles as an apostle to the Gentiles. And it could be understood as him saying, well, I'm, I'm not really concerned with Israel, right? My job, my role is I'm speaking to the Gentiles. Well, you have to remember back in chapter 9, verse 3, he said, I'd be willing to find myself accursed and, and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen, for the sake of Israel. So he had a, a great love and passion for his people. He did the same thing in uh, Romans 10, verse 1 talking about his love and his concern for his people. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So we shouldn't understand him saying that he is an apostle to the Gentiles as him saying, I don't care about my people. He absolutely does. And he realizes that in reaching out to the Gentiles that he will, uh, in a roundabout way, be used by God to reach to the Jews as well. Um, And Paul himself kind of exemplifies how God is using Israel to reach the world. So here, talking about their transgression is being used to reach the Gentiles, reach the world with the gospel. Paul, who himself is a Jew, is being used as an apostle to the Gentiles. uh, Again, kind of illustrating how God is working in the grander scheme of things to uh, reach all for his glory. Uh, another verse I want to read for you real quick is Isaiah 49, 6. He's, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you, again, a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So, once again, we see that God is, um, he has his eyes set farther than just on Israel. Not that his eyes aren't set on Israel. Again, he made these promises to Israel. He is a God who keeps his promises. But it's too small a thing for him to be concerned with Israel alone. 
he is uh, looking to save the world, the Gentiles as well. What are those two references Isaiah 49.6, I think. And... Yeah, earlier it was 42, 6 through 8. Yes. An interesting thought, too, is with God's focus on the multi-ethnic kingdom or a multinational kingdom, is that even continues on into the new heavens and new earth, mm-hmm. where the different nations are represented in the new heavens and new earth. Yeah. Which is a, a thing I think sometimes can relegate ethnicity or nationality or diversity to a fallen planet. Yeah, and a lot of people will point to, is it Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, and um, they'll try to do away with ethnicity altogether, uh, especially sometimes in these chapters, and say that, well, we are all one in Christ, so it doesn't really matter if you're a, a Jew or Gentile. Well, uh, what that is saying is that God is no respecter of persons, right? He doesn't say, well, only the Jews are allowed to be my people, or only the, the females are allowed to be my people. But we are all one in Christ. We are all equal in Christ. But there's still a, a distinction, right, um, between Jew and Gentile. It's just not realized as better or worse, inferior or superior, but we are all equal in Christ. All right. Um, Where did we leave off in Romans All right, we'll just read, starting in verse 13, read down through 15, probably. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So again, that's his his goal. He is an apostle to the Gentiles, but he still has in mind uh, drawing in and, and winning and saving some of those Jews as well by way of jealousy. And then in verse 15, he says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so, um, before we really get into that, I want to go back and read Ezekiel. We referenced this last couple weeks too. Ezekiel 37. Uh, Great passage. I'm going to read the first half of that chapter for us says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel talking, and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's answer is the best. He says, oh Lord God, you know, um, like, of course, God, you know, I don't, I'm not going to answer. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus the Lord God, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and that you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, and I commanded, and I prophesied, there was a noise. As I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came back together, bone to its bone. It's like a horror movie, right? And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, and there was no breath in them. 
And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied and he commanded me and the breath came into them and they came to life and they stood on their feet and an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of the graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken it and done it, declares the Lord. Several times throughout that, he says, you will know that I am the Lord. And at the end, he talks about how he will place his fear within them. He will put them in their land. And that is something that hasn't happened as a whole to the land of Israel, something that will one day happen. So back again in Romans 11, um, in that last little verse, um, or that, yeah, the last verse that we read in 15, uh, we pick up this same parallelism we saw up here. So he talks about how um, their rejection, so before we had transgression, transgression, failure, now we have their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. So hopefully you can see how all these different things, um, these words and these concepts go together. So. Their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Um, so here we have life from the dead. Just like we read about in Ezekiel 37 that um, God took these dry bones and he raised them up and he lifted them up so that they may know that he is the Lord, that he is going to bring them back in the land, that he's going to <coughs> put his spirit within them um, and make them a people, once again, who are, are set apart for him. So now coming back up here to our timeline, we need to finish our timeline. Jesus, while he was on the earth, um, throughout this time period, right, where he's uh, presenting the gospel to Israel and he's saying, you guys have rejected me, you guys have left me, you've turned your back on me. Before that, in Matthew 16, 18, what did he say? That he, yeah. All right. So he made this promise that he was going to build his church, right? Of course, we know a church isn't a building, but it works for pictographical reasons, right? Um, so he built this church, and this was a a new thing that he was doing. He said, "I will build my church, future tents, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it." That. Um, nothing is going to come against the church and attack the church and, and kill the church. But the church is at some point um, going to cease to exist on earth, right? How does that happen? Like a big Poof. <laughs> a big vacuum, right? Um, that Jesus, so this was, the church wasn't established until um, after Jesus' um, death, burial, and, and resurrection and ascension. 
But Jesus is going to come back for his church, and we're going to be caught up with him in the sky, right? We're going to be raptured out of this place. We're going to be long gone. And um, it's after that point that we're going to see God working with um, Israel again. It's shortly after the, the, the rapture of the church that this is when the, the restrainer is removed, right? Second Thessalonians 2, I think, that he who now restrains sin is taken away and removed, that um, the, the timeline now comes back to Israel. So, wow, I don't have enough time to do all this, but if you go back to Daniel 9, it talks about the, the 70 weeks of Daniel. And uh, the first 69 weeks go up until the Messiah is cut off. So we will get into this someday. Um, after Romans 11, we want to go back and finish up our eschatology. So when we combined classes, we stopped our systematic theology before we got to eschatology, the study of the end thing. So we want to go back and uh, do that after Romans 11, and that will help kind of bring clarity to all this. But um, in... Daniel 9, Daniel talks about how there will be uh, 62 weeks and then seven weeks, if you guys are familiar. If you're not, don't let me confuse you. And then the Messiah will be cut off. And the 62 and the seven equal up to 69 weeks out of a total of 70 weeks in full. And then the Messiah is cut off, right, at the crucifixion. And then uh, later on, we're going to pick up the 70th week of Daniel. And we know that as the tribulation. And the tribulation in Scripture is referred to as a time of Jacob's trouble. And so that's when the, the focus shifts from Israel to the church. This is the church age, the Gentile age, back to Israel. So... This is a really messy timeline, I'm sorry. Um, in here, remember this is our church, so God is dealing with the church during this time period. Uh, the salvation of the Gentiles, riches of the Gentiles, reconciliation of the world. If you look back in Romans 11 and go back down to verse 25, we see a reference to the fullness of the Gentiles. Um, it says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, same word, the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, that's when the rapture will take place. So this is Romans 11.25, um, speaking of all these tongues, tribes, and nations having been told and proclaim the gospel and then coming to a, a fullness. And that's when the church is going to be raptured and taken away. And God's um, focus is going to be placed back on Israel for this time of Jacob's trouble. Um, that is a lot, I know. In, well, any questions at this point? None that you're wanting to articulate. I completely understand that. Um, so this is the, the special time that God is working with the Gentiles again until um, 
he puts his focus back on Israel. In Revelation 7, we read, it's been a while since I've heard that. It's nice. Revelation 7, we read about the, the 144,000, right? These Jews who are sealed, who are set apart uh, to God, and they have a, a specific purpose in being set apart to God. Um, and we read about that purpose in part in Revelation 14, 4. And that verse says that these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have not for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So they are the, the first fruits, which means that they are um, they are saved, they are sealed, they are set aside, and they are to go out and they are to produce more. They are to go out as evangelists to uh, win the nations. So we have 144,000 evangelists um, later on in Revelation, well, later than this. So Revelation 11, we read about the, the two witnesses and how they're going to have this same kind of evangelistic um, mission in this time of tribulation where they're going to go out and they're going to proclaim the gospel to the world. And um, between these, we can see how God is going to use Israel to reach the rest of the world. So going back into uh, Romans 11. Let's see. Maybe I'll get back to Romans 11. All right. So looking at, again at verse 15, it says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So he's saying they rejected God and the result was this whole big church age, this age of the Gentiles, where God is going to move his focus from this tiny little nation to the world and make salvation available to the world. If that's what their transgression and their failure and their rejection results in, all this salvation and riches for the world, what will their acceptance result in? It will result in um, their, their fulfillment. It will result in life from the dead, just like we read in Ezekiel 37. And it will result in even greater um, growth of the kingdom of God's plan. So I said that we've come back to this idea of kingdom a little bit. Uh, the kingdom is in reference to all these, right? It's in reference to all people who are part of God's economy, God's plan. Um, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, they were part of the kingdom of God in the sense that they were believers in God. They were submitted to God. They were righteous um, in accordance with God and, and what he wanted from them. And in the tribulation, these people, these 144,000 evangelists, they're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, and they're going to win other people to this kingdom of God. They're going to completely transform the world, right? They're going to be the ones that usher in the millennial kingdom. People talk about how the church is going to usher in the millennial kingdom. The church isn't even going to be here. You could almost say that everybody except for the church is going to usher in the millennial kingdom because the Jews are going to be the ones who are going to be building um, the, the kingdom of God, preparing it for Christ's reign on earth. Talking about, in Revelation, these two witnesses, um, 
the predominant view on who these two witnesses are is Moses and Elijah, who are not a part of the church. They're a part of Israel. And the rest of these, so these guys are going to go out and they're going to win other Gentiles to the kingdom, right? Gentiles will be saved during this seven-year tribulation period as well. And they no doubt will be a part of uh, going out and preaching the gospel and building the kingdom, so to speak, right? Of course, by the power of God and God alone. So pretty much everybody other than the church is going to be used in building the kingdom. So I need to raise some stuff up here. So this is a kind of big, confusing concept, but if we consider uh, the kingdom of God and those who are part of God's work and God's economy, those who are going to be in the eternal state, so after the tribulation, we're going to have a thousand-year reign of Christ, right? Where he's going to literally reign on the earth for a thousand years. And then after that, we have the eternal state where... um, God is going to make a new heaven, new earth, and uh, we're going to dwell forever, right? That's why it's called the eternal state. But the kingdom is made up of all these believers throughout all of history. And within that um, is us, the church, right? The church, or the kingdom does not equal the church, but everybody who is in the church is within the kingdom. So again, kind of heady concepts. And we will we'll get there. We'll talk all this eschatology stuff out in a lot more depth and with a lot more time for questions and um, hopefully make it more articulate than my mess of a board up there. But in reference to uh, Romans 11, this really is all interconnected and in how God has used Israel to bring about the church age and how much more so is their acceptance after the church leaves. Because they're, remember, they're drawn to jealousy. And I could imagine myself, if I was a Jew in this tribulation time, going through the worst hell imaginable, and I saw, okay, well, that nation that wasn't a nation, those Gentiles who, they're not even Jews, right? They've been taken up and and rescued out of this, and they're with God while I'm going through this hell. Um, I want that, right? I would be jealous of that. And so God's going to use that to... um, increase his kingdom even more. And then real quick, um, and I'm not going to do this justice, maybe Dean can pick up some next week. In verse 16, uh, he says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are holy also. So this goes back and it's a reference to uh, the the Levitical system of um, Sacrifices. You can read about it in Numbers 15, 17 through 21. Um, but Paul is applying spirit, a spiritual principle to the first fruits um, and how they serve as a pledge to the final harvest. So when they had a harvest either of grain or um, whatever it was, they would take the first part of that and they would give it to the Lord, not even knowing if the rest of their harvest was going to come in and they were going to have that to, to care for themselves. But they took that and they gave it to God as um, a, a recognition of what God is going to provide in the future. And uh, Paul, uh, commentators think that he's talking about the, the patriarchs, right? And um, how the patriarchs are the first fruit of the dough. And they're the, 
the part that makes it holy and then the rest of the dough becomes holy. And you can see that throughout the rest of the remnant of Israel and how there's always a, a holy portion of Israel, a, a people who God has reserved for himself. And he says, if the first part of the dough is holy, the rest is going to become holy as well. And as we get throughout the rest of chapter 11, we're going to see how God is going to work in Israel so that as we read in verse 26, um, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, which again kind of takes us back to this time of Jacob's trouble, this time of tribulation. So, I think we need some coffee. <laughs> Let's pray and we'll take a break. Do you have a question? Or a comment? Yes. Concentration camps. <laughs> that was the result of a lot of the Luther. Dean's going to get into that a little bit next week in 17 through 24. And uh, Paul says, well, you Gentiles, you need to watch out because you grafted into them. You can be taken out just as easily. So let's pray. God, we thank you again for how you work everything perfectly together in your will. And thank you for the little bit that you've chosen to reveal to us. Help us to understand it better. Help us to worship you rightly. God, I pray that we would have a, a blessed morning where we would exalt you in our hearts and our minds, that you would be lifted up in this place. Amen.